President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note I am a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Uh, really, it's going to be an interesting show today. I'm broadcasting from Boston at the M. MIT Investor Conference. I have one of my colleagues in the studio down at Wharton, Brad Crom. He's a fixed income strategist at Wisdom Tree, also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Brad, thanks for coming down to Philadelphia and, and sitting in my stead there. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, always great to be back in Philly. We, uh, Brad also was a Wharton graduate as well, so always good to get more Wharton guys on our show. Uh, we're going to be talking the first part of the program about Europe. Uh, one of the big dis- discussion points on the markets this week, we had the elections and what that's going to mean for other elections the rest of this year. Uh, we're going to be talking with one of our other colleagues from, from the European offices. Um, but before we do that, let's just turn to Professor Siegel. Professor, the Fed, dis- the Fed meeting here, we had a uh, sort of a quiet market reaction in the last few days, but, uh, you know, how, how did you read the, the Fed decision and and the uh, the tone of the markets afterwards. Uh, two, not three. That's basically uh, what the what the market liked. Uh, they're on uh, course for two more increases, not three. Uh, and I think the market liked that. Although there are some members that do want to go up on on each quarter. Uh, uh, that's one reason why the bond market actually um, uh, yields fell so much is because. Uh, everyone is positioned for a, uh, you know, a, a three increase. Uh, it, was, it was pretty dovish uh, on the whole. Uh, not much changed. Dot plots, not much changed from before. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, basically it was, it was the words that they wanted here. There was one dissent, Neil Kashkari, who's a Wharton graduate. He thinks they should stay the same. Uh, he sees slack in the economy. He he doesn't think, uh, you know, that uh, we're, we're, we're tightening that much and we're, we've reached our objectives on inflation. Um, clearly, if, if James Bullard, uh, who rotated off the voting, would have been there, he would have joined him on the dissent. So he had one dissent for no increase. And Neil is quite an outspoken guy. He's going to make his views throughout this whole year uh, uh, pretty pretty well felt. Uh, by the way, the Fed is not behind the curve on because you can see, as I say, the long bond is trading at 249. You saw the wobble in oil, saw the little wobble in, in commodities. That means uh, uh, to me that uh, they're not behind the curve. If, if they were really behind the curve, you would see the long bond at 275.3. You would see oil uh, and, and other commodities higher. 
Yeah, so you know, I'm at this uh, investment conference at, at MIT, and, and everybody refers to you know the markets. Are, are we at these really inflated levels? People refer to another Boston person here, uh, GMO, and, and Jeremy Grantham's outlook, where he has an outlook for zero, essentially real returns over the next seven years. Um, any commentary on the longer term outlook uh, based on on where you see the markets today? Well, I mean, he he is looking at uh, uh, you know last year's earnings. Um, and what are earnings going to be under a Trump administration? Uh, you know, deregulation is is really important. Uh, more COs say deregulation than even tax reform. Uh, we're going to see a lot more mergers. We're going to see firms forming and going ahead without all regulatory delays. Uh, this is sort of optimism. We see the optimism so much, not only among the consumers, uh, not only among the business, we small businesses. Every single one says, golly, we, we finally have a chance of moving our economy without the federal government putting its fingers in everything. And no one knows what numbers that can be. Is it $5 a share, $10 a share, $15 a share uh, in our new global economy and, and how wealth is uh, created? Uh, and, and, and just speaking, I know that, uh, you know, I, I, I respect Jeremy Grantham a lot, uh, but uh, even if you say a 20 P.E. ratio, uh, that still gives me a 5% real return, not a zero, only if we return to a 13, 14, 15, and that would mean rampant inflation and bad economy. Uh, that, that, to me, is a worst-case scenario. Yeah, and they always, they always point to sort of peak profit margins in the U.S. and that maybe profit margins are going to mean revert. And uh, without, you know, potentially maybe some of this cutting regulations, cutting corporate taxes, that might actually support some profit margins here. Yeah, profit. And don't forget, profit margins are, you know, very much dependent on where you're selling your goods. Um, uh, the more you sell abroad, the higher the profit margins are. Profit margins are much higher in the tech industry, which is moving ahead, uh, you know, at a, at a greater pace. So, you know, I, th- those historical profit margins uh, in a very low interest rate world uh, can be deceiving because, uh, you know, a profit margin when you have to finance your capital uh, bonds at 5, 6, 7, 8 percent are very different than when you have to do it at 2, 3, 4. So uh, I don't think we're mean reverting. I know that uh, Jeremy Grantham does think that that's going to mean revert, and that's, I think, the reason for his. Uh, a zero prediction, but I think there's a secular trend up on on those uh, margins that uh, uh, will not be negative. Well, Professor, always good to have you on and get get your thoughts. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation. Um, we're going to be talking with Victor Nosik, who's the director of research uh, at Wisdom Tree in our London offices out in Europe. Um, we had big elections this week. A lot of people are focused on politics. Victor, welcome to our program. Thanks very much for having me, Jeremy. Before we get into, you know, just what happened in Europe this week, why we think it's important, some of the implications for the rest of the year, maybe you could just introduce yourself. It's the first time on our show here. Uh, maybe just introduce to our, our audience uh, your background and, and uh, what you've been doing in your, in your career. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is uh, Victor Nosek. I am um, head of the um, research desk at Wisdom Tree Europe here in London. Um, basically, my background is essentially uh, macroeconomics. Um, graduated from the Maastricht University in the Netherlands and then moved on my first job in investment banking in London. Um, took some sell-side research jobs in equity research and equity strategy. 
then moved on to work for BlackRock a few years later um, as a buy-side analyst covering um, developed and emerging markets, um, and then progressively ended up in the ETF industry, and here's where I am as head of um, research at the European desk. So I cover all asset classes, um, top-down, bottom-up, and overlay against the um, ETF studies that we have, the, the investment story, essentially. Very good. Yeah. So Europe is is one of the big focal points of the markets now. A lot of people, you know, politics has come in. You can't escape the political discussion everywhere you go. In the U.S., we have Trump. Last year in London, you had Brexit. And now people are, are sort of wondering what's going to happen with all these elections. And we had the first set this week. Maybe, you know, for people in the U.S. who may not follow the, the, the election cycle that closely, maybe just frame for people what elections were taking place this week and, uh, you know, some of the different parties involved. Yeah, so we had the um, elections in the Netherlands uh, just yesterday, and um, basically the story here has been whether the uh, political landscape would change with the far-right movement potentially being able to be part of a coalition government for the first time ever. Um, initial polls um, in the beginning of, the, of last year were really giving the far-right movement uh, a clear lead, uh, but progressively, post the summer, that lead has kind of dissipated uh, to a certain degree that is attributable uh, to the uh, mainstream parties that have increasingly adopted the far-right movement's rhetoric around national nationalism at the expense of, um, uh, of Europe and European integration. And um, as a result, they've lost votes uh, towards the very end uh, of uh, um, of last year and in this year therefore the momentum really shifted towards more of the mainstream parties plus a pretty healthy economy a recovering economy has helped the um, the biggest party that is leading the coalition the uh, the liberals essentially to essentially you know uh, mitigate or reduce their uh, losses because they were progressively losing uh, losing votes. And so what you have now is essentially a result where the uh, mainstream parties will continue to govern, although in a different coalition we'll have more parties involved to form a coalition, essentially because the two parties that previously were part of the coalition have lost seats in the parliament, and so we need more uh, parties to get the majority in parliament. But it would also mean that the um, um, far right will be the second largest party in opposition. So the mainstream parties do not want to team up with the far right to form a coalition. So as well, the far right will be the second part, second largest party in opposition. I do think that Europe isn't out of the woods or Holland isn't out of the woods just because the far right hasn't won the election doesn't mean sentiment has clearly shifted uh, towards more, again, um, nationalist views and promoting Dutch interests over Europe's interests. Um, and I think the, one of the key mainstream parties in the Netherlands, the Christian Democrats, who have actually gained seats uh, during uh, leading up the last two weeks in the election, um, this has basically been because the Christian Democrats have started to increase um, nationalist rhetoric uh, of the last couple of months and 
including, for instance, questioning the ECB's uh, monetary policy and whether this is not damaging the Dutch uh, savings and pension fund industry, precisely because uh, in pursuit of very low interest rates as a result of QE, many of the um, long-term pension liabilities and defined benefit plans and life insurance policies become essentially very hard to, uh, to maintain. And um, this is the crit- criticism leveled by a mainstream party uh, and not a fringe party. So I think it sets the stage for further tensions, even as it appears as though that the result of the election would suggest the you know, um, imminent fears around the political disintegration of Europe uh, has, been, has been avoided. Uh, so I think it's, it's still going to be um, very tense, also because it's not just the Netherlands. We'll have the French ele- elections in four weeks' time, in the middle of April, and it will be the first round. It will be a presidential election, um, so not a um, legislative election. And there, too, the polls continue to, uh, you know, to lead and favor the far-right movement to at least pass the first round. And the far-right movement, which is essentially Marie Le Pen's, uh, uh, the National Front, she, too, uh, just like the far-right movement in the Netherlands, uh, wants to put the euro to a referendum, uh, wants basically out of the European Union. And um, if she were to go into the uh, second round with another party, such as the independents, it could mean that the financial markets could continue to be quite tense. Uh, The pressure could potentially be on the euro. The pressure could potentially be around the bond markets, Uh, much less so, ironically, uh, to the equity markets. Actually, we think that against the backdrop of the political uncertainty over the next couple of months, um, that actually dividend-paying equities are potentially the favorable asset class to be holding. Um, long story short, I think European equities are, especially the big uh, large-cap equities, are increasingly isolated from the, mac- uh, from the geopolitical uncertainties pertaining to Europe. Uh, Victor, um, yeah. yeah, one, one thing before we maybe transition too much to, to Europe at large, um, I wanted to come back to an idea that, that you were talking about where uh, I think we even heard it from Gerd Wilders um, on election night that the genie will not go back into the bottle. This idea that that certainly um, to globalists, the most recent election uh, in the Netherlands is um, in many respects promising. Um, one thing that, that I kind of found striking was that, at least in the United States, we've had this almost, um, um, you know, obsession with the political environment, particularly, um, you know, maybe starting the middle of last summer. Um, in this election in the Netherlands, we've seen the highest amount of turnout in 30 years. You've seen voter turnout um, in excess of 80 percent. What do you necessarily subscribe that to, um, you know, as it relates to this election in the Netherlands? Do you see the Netherlands becoming... Um, much more focused on politics uh, in a way that we potentially haven't seen uh, before in the past. Yeah, nationalist politics. And um, that's the real problem. Even a country such as the Netherlands, which has seen unemployment come down um, and seen relatively a robust recovery um, against that backdrop, 
that recovery hasn't come with pain. I mean, the pain was quite significant because of the tax imposed to households and businesses. And real wages have gone up in the Netherlands post-financial crisis, but as when you actually start taking into account the increases in taxes that um, the government imposed on Dutch citizens in order to pay down the debt because we had a financial crisis where some of the major banks were had to be basically taken over by the state, so a bailout. So all the bailout money um, was essentially uh, tax-financed. And since the tax hike, many uh, people feel that you know um, national interest has been... Um, uh, have have never been the priority uh, of the mainstream parties. And so I think just because the mainstream parties have successfully uh, negotiated uh, through the years post the financial crisis doesn't mean that going forward um, politicians are put under pressure to change their politics with the focus more towards what's important for, for the Netherlands and potentially less important for uh, the European project, that could also mean less willingness to support other countries financially, whether it's, you know, through a bailout program, uh, whether it's um, general aid. Um, the European Union, uh, there are huge financial transfers each year. Um, the Netherlands is a net contributor to the European Union, as are many other countries. And... Um, I think it could potentially set a precedent for, uh, I don't want to exaggerate it, but I do think that as incomes have, haven't really uh, recovered significantly, that um, it becomes such a sensitive, that it becomes an increasingly sensitive topic to talk about. And so national politics will probably uh, be put on the agenda more and more and adding more tensions to all the other problems uh, Europe has, including how to deal with Italy. And that also means I could foresee less budgetary leeway for economies such as Italy in 2017, precisely because countries like the Netherlands would oppose any budgetary leeway, thinking that you know we've been bailing out other economies already uh, post-financial crisis. Now we need to deal with our own problems first. So... It's less about European integration and more about, you know, independence. So I think we're still not out of the woods. Let me uh, reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Victor Nosik, the Director of Research uh, of Wisdom Tree's European uh, offices over there. We've got Brad Crom, a fixed income strategist at Wisdom Tree in our Warren studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, uh, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. And so, Victor, a lot of interesting stuff here. And, and you know, the Netherlands, when you look at bond yields around the world, you know, Germany is one of the lower bond yields, you know, negative yield. Everybody in Europe really has negative short-term yields. Um, but, you know, even when you go to long-term yields, 10-year bonds in Germany today, right around 43 basis points. And the Netherlands is one of the sort of second lowest. I see their 10-year their bond at, at 67 basis points. But you're starting to see some divergence with some of the other European countries. France, where we've been picking up, the spread's been widening out. Now we're at 110. Mm-hmm. But even you think 110, I mean, you think about where we are in the U.S. at 250. What's the, what do you see? You know the the the, the situation with the European bond yields. Uh, I mean, they're certainly very low. Do you, what, how do you how do you see these things playing out over the course of the year? 
Well, just look what the um, Trump win did in uh, what was it, November last year to European bonds in the face of QE to the tune of 80 billion euros a month. Um, you know, the, the risk-on rally was quite aggressive, and the correction in U.S. bond markets was quite instantaneous and also quite aggressive. And the same thing can be said in European bond markets. And that's the danger, that although the ECB is ready to support bond markets, it does suggest that it's the U.S. elections last year kind of left the ECB almost... Um, Impotent. It couldn't really suppress these yields. I mean, QE is only there to you know to keep long-term bond yields suppressed and allow businesses to refinance them and households to refinance mortgages or you know loans more cheaply. And that has basically been uh, significantly cut short by uh, uh, Trump winning the elections and the expectation that economic performance of this will be. Uh, pretty upbeat for the next couple of years. And that is the real danger, that as bond yields in the U.S. Go, go up, and as Jeremy, you rightfully say, these bond yields in the U.S. are much higher than equivalent uh, longer-dated yields in Europe, that it almost begs the question, why would you want to be holding a 40, 50 basis points, 10-year bond yield uh, of, uh, of Dutch sovereigns or of German sovereigns when, in fact, your strategies will give you at least 120 basis points more in yield, potentially for the same risk. Plus, knowing that you know, um, with Trump, you potentially could, uh, you could potentially get a stronger dollar. You know, there is every incentive to at least maybe consider reallocating back into U.S. bonds at the expense of European bonds. So the price pressure, because of the huge yeah. yield gap between these two, is is. Um, it's a big problem for um, for European bonds. So the outlook is more bearish than bullish. I agree. Yeah, no, that's one of the things we always say in the U.S. One of the things keeping our rates constrained is that you do have these global forces of, of really low yields around the world. Um, I want I want to get your your opinion on, you know, we've had we've talked about the the euro situation with Professor Siegel a number of times, and despite all this political stuff that comes up, he you know, and there's going to be a lot of nationalistic uh, tendencies. We you know we agree. The question is, will anybody actually leave the euro? Will people actually vote to leave out the euro? You've had the Greeks who you could say voted for austerity, yet they still seventy percent want to stay in the euro. Do you actually, at your heart of hearts, believe anybody will vote and actually leave the euro at the end of the day? I think it will be a slow, slow bleed process, and potentially the Netherlands will not choose to vote uh, to exit either the European Union and um, change from multilateral trade agreements to bilateral trade agreements, such as the UK is now pursuing, and will also not likely to, you know, to put the euro, put the euro to a referendum, which is the currency, the uh, euro, uh, euro member share. But I do see other weaker economies, potentially Italy, uh, to you know, to really start considering their merits of staying inside the eurozone when they can't really achieve escape velocity recovery. Um, their recovery has been so anemic that unemployment is actually ticking back up. And if you look at the years when um, Matteo Renzi was in office, the pro-reformist, 
prime minister who was um, who resigned after he lost the vote on constitutional reform last year, if you remember, in Italy. You know, uh, Matteo Renzi, he was purely pro-growth, and he really wanted to reform the country. And since 2014, when he was voted into office, he barely made any dent to the unemployment situation in Italy. And um, you have to wonder who will. And then you have to wonder what can be the trigger for Italy to boost growth. And if anything, Italians have been almost the top state savers in uh, the European Union. And by that I mean, apart from Germany, it's really been Italy that has significantly, um, um, you know, produced um, every year since 2014 um, state savings. So their expenditure were less than the tax receipts. What's overwhelming the Italian government is the interest rate is the interest burden or the interest repayment burden. So if you are saving uh, before interest expense to the tune of around 2% of GDP since 2014, which is ex- exactly what the Italians have been doing, so it's, they've been super austere, they've been overwhelmed by the 4% of interest, interest repayments uh, every year over the same time period. So what's the point of pursuing austerity if you continue to be underwater and your leverage in the economy, i.e. your debt-to-GDP ratio, continues to stay very high. And the real problem is, of course, is the negative, is the, is the, um, is the fiscal multiplier, which is greater than one, which means that if you cut back debt by 1%, then GDP contracts by more than 1%. So you need fiscal stimulus to revive growth and to boost employment and to prevent the further fracturing of Europe. And in order to do that, you need the Germans on board and the Dutch on board and to tell, you know, and to allow Italy more budgetary leeway so that they should move away from the 3% deficit target and maybe be allowed to spend 35 or 4% of GDP yeah. just to get, you know, the boost to GDP and the escape velocity. And the Germans don't want to do it. It's politically not... Uh, not sellable. The you know the voters and the citizens will think, well, if you're going to do that, next time there's a slowdown in the financial crisis, it's us again who on the hook will be on the hook for for the bailouts. The Dutch think the same thing. So there you have it. You have this yeah. fiscal it's, boost that's needed, and it's, and it's not going to come in. Well, it's, it's, what's it's, what's it's interesting today on the headlines, you see the headlines on TV, actually, as, as we're talking here, is they're awaiting, they're awaiting President Trump in Merkel's press conference. Maybe Trump's infrastructure uh, push will – he'll try to push Merkel in that direction that, you know, they, we've, been, we've been calling out that Germany is getting these unfair, quote-unquote, unfair trade advantages with the weak euro. You know, when I think about who actually would leave the European currencies, would anybody actually leave? It has to be Germany, if the only person who could actually leave and the, everybody else would sort of band together in some respects. Um, I mean, that's sort of just a, a brief speculation. But I mean, I, I, I'm guessing the professor's comments that he doesn't think anybody leaves zero stands. In the, in the final few minutes that we have with you, well, let's talk about major. So you, you talked about we, we talked about the bond pressures. We talked about the political risk, maybe more nationalistic policies leading to risk in, in the currency potentially. What, what are the other major 
you know, market views that you're you're looking for? I mean, the banks tend to be one of these questions that comes up all the time. What what is the situation with the European banks? Are they a value opportunity? Are they a value trap? What what do you think there? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, good question, Jeremy. Um, yeah. So when I said earlier that potentially the equity market is the better asset class to allocate into to position around Europe as opposed to fixed income or the currency. Um, with that, I mean, of course, that's it being subject to sentiment in uh, in the banks. Like in so many markets, if the financial sector isn't doing well, that typically has a beta effect on non-financials. But in Europe, um, troubled lenders are restructuring. They have successfully, uh, some of them at least, um, capit- uh, recapitalized themselves, uh, raised equity capital uh, on uh, on primary markets to boost the capital bank, uh, the, the, the the capital ratios, and um, I think it sets a, you know it, it sets a precedent for much for much better growth going forward. And having said that, I do think that the that some of the European seg- of some segments in the European equity market are potentially set to do much better. However, you do see uh, that because there are many utility and energy stocks that, in terms of size, uh, over-represent uh, uh, a domestic economy, that um, you want to potentially avoid these defensive uh, sectors in this uh, political uncertain backdrop, obviously because state ownership is very high in major utility and energy names, in, or high, relatively high, that is, um, um, in Europe. And, you know, those companies will always be subject to volatility, not knowing what the uh, political outlook will be. Will the state look to cut back their shareholdings in these companies or will they look to increase their shareholdings? So it's probably better to essentially focus on the exporters in, uh, in, in Eurozone. And you could either, you know, focus on a export-tilted strategy where you are underweight the... Um, defensive sectors to play that theme, currency hedge or not currency hedge, or if you look at the country performance uh, in Europe's equity market, it's increasingly diverse, uh, diverging. The DAX 30, for instance, is one of the best performing European equity markets uh, of the last couple of years, uh, whilst the Cacaron and uh, other um, country equity markets in Europe have been sort of underperforming. So you could consider as an equity strategy to be more country-specific uh, for 2017 as we go over those phases of elections and, you know, consider the export exposure. Because, uh, again, the European economy recovery will be muted by the fact that the recovery is only folk, uh, concentrated around Germany and some of the northern European countries, whilst France, but in particular Italy, and now Spain, who's losing momentum, has been basically flatlining. So I would go to those equities that are, you know, that give you the export exposure, and maybe not go all the time broad, but, but consider the country-specific exposures uh, to play the theme more precisely. 
Well, very good. Victor, thank you so much for taking the time late on a Friday out of uh, our, our London office. This has been Victor Nosek, the Director of Research of Wisdom Trees European Offices. Uh, stay tuned, everyone. After the break, we're going to have to take a short break here, but we're talking to Mustafa Chowdhury, Head of Rates for Voy Investment Management. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'm joined in our Wharton studio by Brad Crom. He's a fixed income strategist at Wisdom Tree. Uh, for this segment of the program, we're now re- ready uh, to welcome Mustafa Chowdhury to the program. Mustafa is the head of rates for Voya Investment Management. He's responsible for directing the investment strategy for the rates group, which includes covering global rates, sectors, currencies, uh, some equity, convexity hedging, which uh, perhaps we won't cover exactly on, on the program here. Uh, but Mustafa, he has 20 years of experience working in the fixed income industry. Mustafa, thanks for joining us on the program today. Hi, thanks. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So we had a, a nice discussion on Europe on the first part of the program uh, with Professor Siegel led us off with a discussion on the Fed, uh, believes that you know the outlook from the Fed this week is indicating towards we might get two more rate hikes, not three, which some people were thinking going into the, into the meeting. Just maybe recapping your thoughts on what we heard from the Fed this week, and, and really, do you have any different views, uh, how you think they are in this new hiking cycle? Um, I think... Uh Fed sort of tempered the expectation a little bit in the text, um, uh, um, a little bit more dovish text than I had expected. Probably they tried to ma- they tried to manage uh, the market outcome, uh, uh, and which they did uh, uh, successfully did in terms of um, rates, um, not pricing another hike. Uh, I think that. Um, at the end of the day, U.S. Um, bond market is going to be sort of a uh, synchronized dance that they're um, going to play. One on the one side, you get the Fed, um, and the uh, on the other, uh, another we got the fiscal policy, um, all the potential tax cuts, uh, the SEA, uh, what's going to happen to SEA the corporate tax reform, border tax adjustments, all of that on the other. And then most importantly, economy is showing signs of uh, good, solid activity growth. So Fed delivered the hike. Nice. Uh, most of it was expected. But the long end uh, sold off a little bit, uh, which I think made sense. It's basically saying... Uh, okay, now we wait for fiscal. Uh, let's get some positive signs there. Then long end uh, will respond uh, with higher rates possibly. Uh, if not, then we could see the flattening continue. Um, but in uh, net net, uh, it's going to be very much uh, dependent on uh, what sort of progress we see in the fiscal front. Yeah. So one of the kind of key explanations for why the Fed um, you know, really came out and decided to signal quite clearly to the market that they were intending to hike in March um, was this idea of being able to preserve flexibility. So right now, if we look at rate hikes, um, you know, current forecasts, you're basically an even money bet um, that you're going to see another rate hike in June. Um, from your perspective, is that something that you guys are, are thinking is, um, you know, more or less likely? I think one of the things that people are starting to turn their focus to now is this idea of, um, you know, a, a, a very seasonally weak 
Q1 GDP print that we'll get towards the back half of April. You know, from where you sit right now, um, obviously a lot can change in, in that amount of time. But but what is your your thoughts in terms of how this tightening cycle might continue continue to evolve? Uh, you know, heading on uh, into the later half of, of 2017. I think we might get another one in June. The the, the Fed will deliver what the market. Uh, expecting the first quarter is GDP is usually weaker and sort of expected uh, to strong seasonality in the first quarter. Um, so that doesn't change this story that the job market is very very tight, uh, not just uh, from the unemployment rate point of view, the payrolls, etc. Um, we are um, running or uh, inflation. And at you know, steady to two and a two and a quarter level, um, so I think that we're gonna we will get the, the most likely the June hike, but after that market, uh, the the Fed will need some confirmation. The market will need some confirmation on the fiscal front because that's the one big uncertainty. And it, Fed's not going to be independent of the fiscal policy because the most of the expectation of beyond the one more hike, which may be justified without the policy outlook, just from the growth impulse uh, that we have seen before, uh, since summer last year. Um, but any more needs further growth impulse. And so outlook on fiscal policy is very important beyond uh, the June, any, more, any further, the third, any third hike to be priced this year, we need to know the fiscal outlook. Sure, I think June, and, and I think it it might happen. And I think that, you know, given the news of the week, we've been focusing quite a bit on what the Fed is doing. Um, maybe if we can talk a little bit more about what's happening uh, at some of the longer tenors in, in fixed income. One of the things that I find, you know, quite remarkable is that, you know, the yield on a U.S. Uh, two-year treasury is yielding about what we saw uh, from 10-year treasuries back uh, is is late is is August of last year. You know, from your perspective, how do you really see the the longer-term rate story evolving uh, going into 2017? Has this rate hike in March uh, necessarily changed where you see you know longer-term rates ending 2017? Yeah, so let's take 10-year rate. Um, we have uh, since uh, late uh, late October, we had about uh, 75 basis points higher today, and um, out of that, 50 basis points is increase in real rates, and 25 is um, in inflation expectation, and um, that's I think about fair. Uh, if you look at the uh, core inflation, it's running about year over year, still about 2.2 percent. So maybe about um, about 10, 15 basis point additional room for uh, 10-year rates to go up just from the inflation expectation. Um, so we could go to, let's say, 265, where we were there like a week and a half ago. Uh, the, for the real rates to move, uh, we need the, the uh, growth impulse. Uh, so far, as I mentioned, we already priced the pre-Trump policy, uh, just the, the growth impulse that was existing in the second half, um, 
at this rate level. So for the real rate to go beyond 50 or maybe even additional 50 possible, if we have a solid, clear um, outlook on, uh, for example, the um, tax cuts uh, for if, if 2017 or early 2018, uh, we need a path for that. If we don't get that, then we are talking about 250 to 275. As soon as we start to get a clear path to policy outlook, which in my mind means um, clear understanding of what the level of deficit is going to be, what the level of issuance is going to be, and we can go to 3% tenure fairly easy. Let me uh, just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking Mustafa Chowdhury of Voya Investment Management. Uh, and Mustafa, you know, a lot of people focus on just how many times the Fed's going to hike this year. Um, you know, and, but you know, on the show, we talked with Professor Siegel on really the long-term outlook uh, for the Fed funds. What is the quote-unquote new neutral rate that you know at the end of the cycle, where they are no longer too accommodative uh, nor too contractionary? Do you have a view? Um, you know, in the in the long-term dot plots, they keep bringing it down. They used to say four percent. They bring it, bring it down to three, three and a half. Um, there's people like Bill Gross and even Professor Siegel who believe that the new neutral is something like 2%, which is a 0% real rate, 2% inflation. Do you have a view what the terminal rate uh, is at this end of the cycle? I am uh, at the same camp as um, Professor Siegel uh, that it's low, um, in the more in the order of zero, if not negative. Um, zero is where um, where it makes sense given the uh, I think there are big structural uh, reasons for very fairly low long-term equilibrium rate. One of them is the um, just just the uh, globalization and low um, low long-run wage cost and labor income. Um, that that doesn't seem like um, in, uh, potential to increase anytime soon, except for small bumps here and there. And then there is the whole question of uh, population aging, uh, productivity still being fairly low. All of that suggests uh, zero is a more reasonable number than a positive uh, one or two that uh, we are historically uh, used to. In a potentially, uh, you know, related question, I, I think one of the things that's often becoming uh, more hotly debated is what the Fed should necessarily do with its balance sheet. Um, from your perspective, you know, are we going to be living uh, in a world where Fed's balance sheet remains significantly elevated relative to what we've seen in history? Uh, and, and kind of how do you see that process starting uh, and then also evolving over time? I think uh, it will be elevated relative to uh, for a big significant chunk of our career going forward. We'll, we would be seeing uh, higher, uh, a large Fed balance sheet relative to the history. Uh, but will the Fed start tapering um, the, for example, slowdown on replacing the MBS prepayments? or slow down the replacement of Treasury um, uh, runoffs. Uh, I think they will, and but I don't think they will do it this year. 
I think it's a 2018 question. There is a certain rate level where they would accompany rate hikes with um, the Fed, uh, the balance sheet uh, reduction. And um, I think it has to be at least three, three hikes, which is two more hikes from here, then uh, we'll start to see balance sheet, uh, balance sheet reduction. That's first quarter 2018. I think they will do it with MBS rather than uh, treasuries. But that doesn't mean that it will be, uh, the balance sheet will be significantly smaller. It will still be a large balance sheet uh, for many years to come. So Mustafa, as you think about all these forces here and, and the thoughts on the Fed, the long-term rates, um, you know, still so have this challenge of you know investors, you know, the standard moderate portfolio, sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds. People are struggling what to do with this historically low return, low rate environment. What is Voya's view? How would you, if you're you know trying to tilt away from just uh, sort of a core broad bond market index, what would your your tilts you know suggest to people? Well, uh, remember, if the equilibrium real rate is um, for long-run equilibrium real rate is uh, likely to be at uh, closer to zero, uh, then the market portfolios, people sort of more like the index type portfolios, you have to have the expectation not too far, uh, too high. So the yeah. real uh, important thing is to have a realistic expectation about uh, returns, uh, the, the, it could easily change. Uh, I think the path to change is significant uh, uh, government expenditure, uh, which could be the fiscal, uh, the infrastructure plan or tax cuts uh, that is possible in the next couple of years that could actually change um, the, some of the uh, expected rates higher and, uh, and returns higher. Uh, we will, though, uh, have, equilibrium is one thing. Uh, we will, though, see um, yield hunger, yield-driven uh, activities that we have seen in 2016 continue into 2017 and potentially continue in 2018. So um, risk assets uh, will still uh, uh, yield even at this very low level still deliver uh, decent returns. Important thing is to avoid pitfalls, um, avoid sectors that might be very sensitive to certain common factors, such as oil. Um, and that's, we, we have seen last year in 2016, sort of massive moves in high yield, uh, just correlated to oil, or, um, or similar sort of other factors that might have uh, big moves. Uh, but there will be, uh, firstly, the yield hunger is going to continue and important things to follow. Uh, uh, not uh, get out of risky asset too quickly. And then, of course, uh, there are sector uh, picking and choosing the right sectors um, is, uh, could still provide good return. Take, for example, um, the. I, I, it's not that I... Uh, I, I must disclose that I work for a, uh, ins- a company that's related to insurance business. But look at that. A lot of insurance business in the U.S. have um, optionality that uh, for um, where low rate um, is not uh, very friendly to them, so higher rates 
uh, will make insurance business do very well. So you know, business by business, banks could do quite well because of the deregulation. Um, so sector by sector, uh, there could be still uh, significant opportunities. I guess um, an, an area that we haven't necessarily touched on, but it's certainly related to Fed policy and, and what the potential impact of the Fed ultimately normalizing the size of its balance sheet. Uh, it's really focusing on the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, if you could share just some of your, your base views, um, maybe predominantly focused on, on G10, um, but then I'd also, if time allows, like to come back to this idea of investors potentially increasing allocations to, to emerging markets. I think that um, the, the um, dollar is a uh, little bit more difficult. Uh, at first sight, it feels like dollar should be stronger, and which it did. It strengthened quite a bit in the last three months, uh, uh, consistent with the rate move, consistent with the Fed hike. Uh, and we have another high potentially coming, and dollar could get a somewhat of a bit higher. But remember, uh, vis-a-vis, uh, you have to think about vis-a-vis which currencies, uh, 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 for example, uh, euro. Uh, European impulse is uh, is still fairly strong. Um, ECB has not a, not much capacity to do more anymore. Uh, easing, so only path. It's very asymmetric in the sense that they could only taper if they do. So the bias for euro is also uh, strong. So you could end up uh, dollar not performing as well against euro. Uh, and we've seen that the dollar performed quite well, but against euro it moved a little bit less steep. Um, I am generally uh, positive on um, relative to expectation on um, um, most of the emerging markets, uh, especially um, still positive on China. The growth, of course, we'll see growth um, slowly, uh, the growth expectation uh, decline, but very orderly, uh, probably delivers still better than, um, better than uh, expectation. But generally, net net, um, the dollar strength uh, again uh, without fiscal policy and any further deficit um, in front of us, we'll see some dollar strength, but not against euro. Uh, and if we get a significant fiscal um, boost, then dollar uh, could keep uh, keep going higher. So we generally like to be uh, still like to be long dollar, but not uh, very strongly long long dollar. Yeah, one of the things I, I think about in that is you know you mentioned in one of the, the the economic policies the border adjustment tax. I feel like if that policy goes through, that would be one of the bigger pushes for for the strong dollar. But that would then potentially have these negative implications for some of the emerging markets. Is that how you think about that? Do you believe that chance that policy is a smaller chance to go through, or or how are you viewing that policy? Uh, that's very hard to predict. Uh... The, whether it's uh, go through or you don't, uh, you don't have think, a crystal ball, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a difficult one, but 
Firstly, uh, there will be relative price change in the U.S., uh, so the imports will be more expensive. Imp- well, those that have more imports of content will be more expensive relative to uh, those com- com- products that have less import content. So we'll see how that relative price change will probably change consumption somewhat, probably uh, negative for U.S. consumers, just from uh, typical demand curve elasticity of demand, et cetera, point of view. Um, some inflation, potentially, um, dollar could be higher. Uh, or again, uh, depend on how, uh, which products and what's the elasticity of consumption um, or demand uh, for those products are. We, we will know the final uh, effect on dollar. But if it's concurrent with deficit increase uh, from other policy changes, then we might see a clear uh, higher dollar. But I'm not 100% sure that we are. It's it's uh, it's clear yet uh, because the labor cost differential is still very large between the countries, uh, uh, the exporting countries, and the U.S. Um, and so some uh, some uh, border tax adjustments or tariff or whatever you call it may not change the direction of and magnitude of uh, trade flows as we anticipate. So that might be a surprise. Um, we might see a lot of surprise um, effects um, outcome from this. Uh, generally, um, generally, uh, in, from a trading point of view, from Positioning point of view, uh, I, whether to um, uh, long or short, I, I think it would be. It's heavily depend on what would be all the concurrent policies will be, whether sure. net result is going to be a uh, increased deficit or not. I think that's the big thing. Well, Mustafa, this has been a great conversation. We appreciate having you on the show with us. It is Mustafa Chodray, the head of rates at Voya Investment Management. I should note uh, Voya does sub-advise some wisdom tree fixed income strategies. Uh, I'd like to thank our, our first guest, Victor Nosek, our head of research from Europe, Brad Crom, fixed income strategist, our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.